Hey folks, it's Mike here. I am back in Portland after a few weeks at home with my family for the holidays. I'm really excited to start getting these episodes out to you regularly once again. Uh, today on Contact, we've got Kevin Devine. Kevin is a wonderful artist. He's got his solo work with the Goddamn Band, as well as a collaboration with Andy Hull from Manchester Orchestra, and that outfit is under the name Bad Books. Um, go listen. Both projects are more than worth your time. He's definitely one of my favorite artists right now. Um, Kevin and I met in Brooklyn at a coffee shop, which is a new setup for our show, and so you're going to hear some coffee shop kind of noises in the background of this episode. I'm really excited to hear what you think of this one. I've done a handful of these now, and I'd like to see the show keep heading in this direction. That said, the only way I'm going to know what you think of the show is by you writing to us. So let us know what you think. We are at Ally Coalition, one word, on SoundCloud and Twitter. Um, also, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can find us by searching at Ally Coalition, two words, and I'm going to put a link to that in the uh, SoundCloud description for this show. All that said, enjoy. sweatshirt jeans and it was like this is a cool like yeah you had study. a uh, you, there was an unspoken agreement to dress accordingly <laughs> and you did exactly and for the record we are currently wearing well i have a sweater over it but a flannel shirt and jeans we've got two-thirds of it do we also have the same like color schemed flannel are we wearing the same flannel mine is like this okay which like maybe has some maroon some red some deep navy blues uh, uh, like a uh, Diagonally striped cream okay. and a little yellow. So I'm with you. You got some. You got some grays in there in yours. Maybe a. Is there a black in there? Uh, I'm a little colorblind. Yeah. So uh, yeah, this is like blackish. I think. Okay, we'll go with that. Yeah. So enough. About this is the scintillating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> People are so. Uh, we're we're wondering what we were wearing and. Now they know. Well, so that's a feature of this medium is like, you never know. They, where are they? And like, what? Are, that's what true. This is actually in public happening right now. Yeah, that's <laughs> fine. Everyone's working and they've got, that's fine. There's two guys talking about shirts. Um, <laughs> so It'd be awesome if that was all we talked about for 45 minutes. Just shirts. Just shirts. Just shirts with Kevin Devine. That's, I think that's your. In my future. Yeah. yeah, it's in my future. So we were talking earlier about, like, what do you do when you're done with music? Yeah. Just shirts. Just shirts and children's books. The Little Bulldozer by Kevin Devine. That could actually be, don't take that idea, anybody out there. That could really be a good. thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm working on it. Yeah? Maybe, I don't know. Could be. You have some, like, seemingly children's, that like, they're not, but, like, the titles, if you only knew the titles, like, Carnival. Sure, Yeah. It sounds child friendly, and then the content is sort of anything but. Yeah, but, but yeah, if, oh, that, I, that kid could be like, that sounds fun. I want to go to a carnival, but not this carnival. Yeah, and then you got there, and it's, <laughs> it's a bit creepy. What's, what's that song about? Um, if you don't mind me, like no, crying into your brain. That's what we're doing. I mean, the really short answers like drugs and, and drinking and consequences therein. And um, sort of, you know, and it's it's pretty heavily allegorical, metaphor, sort of um, 
not absurd, what's the word I'm looking for, where something is like, it's hyperbole and there's some uh, surreal, 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 dream imagery and um, sort of like a more, hopefully a more like artful way of saying, um, you know, um, discussing the impact of that at a certain point in my life, the choices I was making around those things and sort of what came from them. Um, than just saying like, drugs can be bad for you, <laughs> which is like a nice PSA or something to say in like a conversation, but not necessarily a good song. Sure. You know, and there's these kinds of like nightmarish images that can kind of come with some of that reality. And, um, and that song is kind of living in that space. And like some of it's literal some of it, like the whole hospital bit, is something that actually happened. And some of it is obviously more dreamt, more hallucinogenic kind of images and, you know, liberties with writing. Because I kind of feel like, for me, it's like writing stuff that can be confessional or appear confessional or first person or autobiographical. The trick to me is like making it have a reason to exist as a piece of writing and as a song and not just as like an entry in a, in a diary or trying to maintain a, a balance from being conversational and being writerly for lack of a less kind of obnoxious word because I don't know I'm not super into songs that are with exceptions because there are exceptions to everything but as a songwriter it's not really my prerogative I don't think to write like really direct kind of like journal entries. It's kind of about trying to capture that feeling, but in a way that's still more like a poem or a story or, or something that is a piece of writing, you know? Not that a journal's not a piece of writing, but maybe it's not a piece of writing the whole world needs to read. So if that makes sense, but Carnival's definitely somewhere in there. And that's about abuse of drugs, abuse of the privilege of drugs and alcohol and kind of, the process of maybe taking that privilege away from yourself or having it be taken away because you kind of realize you don't really know how to do them like a gentleman or whatever. So, and some scary shit that can happen in the interim. Waking up in a hospital. For example. Yeah. That'll do it. That'll do. Well, it, it, you'd think that'd do it. it didn't Did really. It <laughs> no. It ha I mean, not for another five years or so, but, okay. but the writing was on the wall and it was part of that process for sure. Something you said about like being direct in your songwriting. There's somebody, somebody I think that did that and always did that. So like, there's a specific song I'm thinking about, but like Elliot Smith. You know how in Alameda it's like start with something that is happening. So like you walk down Alameda and then it gets more metaphors as you go along. Yeah. So like specifically me being in Portland, like there have been times where it's like, okay, I am walking down Alameda listening to Alameda, being like. Oh, shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what is going on? Here? Yeah, right, right. Well, I think that he's a big, to me, he's a perfect example of, I mean, he's a brilliant, he was a brilliant songwriter. Like, every way that could be realized as a musician, as an arranger, as a singer, as a harmony, he heard harmony. He, he the voicings of his chords were always really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, 
he was incredible. He played everything better than the best person in a given band plays his or her instrument. Like he was a better piano player, guitarist, bassist, and drummer than most people's band. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's that lyric in um, Can't Make a Sound. Is that the last song on figure eight where he says, why would you want any other when you're a world within a world? And I always thought that was about, and whether it is or not, I don't know, but I always thought that was about him. Like... Well, it's hard for me to be in a band because I'm a band. Oh. It's hard for me to, like, give this over to people because he had such clarity of vision around what he wanted it to sound like and be like, it seems to me anyway, and having gotten to know and work with people who knew and worked with him, mm -hmm. piecing some stuff together. But to me, that style of songwriting is a perfect example of what you bring up because he, his music is so, for lack of a better word, emotional, full of feeling, evocative, can be can almost feel like you're eavesdropping in terms of the approach right but what how he says what he says there's a lot more um he obscures things on purpose he makes the picture cloudy and makes you have to like do some work as a listener because he's a good writer yeah because he's brilliant yes and because that to him was a more compelling piece of art than just saying, sometimes I drink too much and make bad decisions. Stuff happened to me when I was a kid and it's hard for me to get over. The world's a complicated place and more than one thing can be true at the same time. But that's what all of his songs are about. But he, if he just said those three things to you in a conversation, there's no reason to write 120 brilliant songs. You know what I mean? So I feel like that's what everybody's writing about is the same six or 10 things. Mm -hmm. The trick is to try to not like reinvent the wheel, but figure out interesting um, ways to build individualistic and unique spokes in the wheel. Okay. I think it's much harder to do. I'm always interested in people who, I had an argument with a close friend once about his music, and I realized we were actually having an argument about our philosophies about writing songs. Through Elliot. Yeah, and with other people, but he was saying like, He's not that great. All he does is play progressions and styles of music that have been around for a long time and make them sound like his own. And I was like, yeah, that's actually the hardest thing for any artist to do. And he does it seemingly effortlessly, which is why he's the best. <laughs> not many people can wear the like Beatles-esque thing, but as part of their greater personality. It's either like, oh, they kind of sound like the Beatles. He like took the Beatles and filtered it through punk, folk, country, pop, and then made it him. And that is like a, that's like saying like a painter did that with Picasso or something. Like that's a huge influence to digest and only a handful of people have ever done it into them rather than having it become them. And he's, so to me, like he's, he's the top. I wish he stayed around longer, and I wish sometimes as I get older, the content, I feel this way about Kurt Cobain too, but the content lyrically, as brilliantly arrived at as it is, I sometimes wish he had been able to age out of some of those feelings, because it can sometimes be like, the older I get, the less I'm like, he'll always be like someone who opened up a vein emotionally and spoke to and for a lot of people, but also at some point in his life, you hope he would have gotten to a place where it was like he stopped maybe writing from a place of bitterness. That's about the only criticism I could think of to lay at his feet. And yeah. that's like a criticism that's born more out of, it's not even a criticism, it's a wish. 
But it doesn't make him less brilliant. It just makes him it makes it sadder that the ending of that story was so shittily, tragically predictable. But anyway, we talk about him for an entire. I think it could be an, a whole podcast about him. But his and to make it circular, his style of writing is hugely is a blueprint in some respects for me. Not that I try to hew like like. Not that I try to do that exactly, but it's an example of how you can write from a place that's emotive and intelligent, mm-hmm. that's full of feeling without like writing and sky writing and showing everyone all of your cards. You always got the feeling with them, but you, t- you never could see all of the cards. And I think that's great. I'd rather have the people who listen to my music be able to do a little work and like project their own experience onto it and tell them like, well, this is exactly about this, which means this is how you should feel about it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I kind of like when people tell me they have interpretations of songs that are like totally not what the song's about to me at all, because that means it, I did my job. If that's what you're going for, then and people can project themselves into it and their own meanings into it. Rather than like, oh, that's that song Kevin wrote about that thing and it makes the song everybody's instead of just yours. And really, once you put a song out in the world, it's not yours exclusively anymore anyway. Sure. For better and for worse. But that's, a, that's kind of the same with all writing. Like, yes. Yeah. Once, it's, once it exists, it's like, how do you protect it? How do you keep your author's kind of ownership of it? Like, you just keep that separate. You get to protect it in the sense that if anyone ever asks me, like, you know, is... Um, is Cotton Crush about um, the Reconstruction Era South, because that's what I think it's about. You can be like, well, that's not what I wrote it about, but that's awesome that that's what you hear in it. Um, or whatever, insert interpretation here. Because, um, yeah, I'd rather, isn't that more interesting? But, but I know the feelings or colors or thoughts or experiences that inform any song I write, and I don't need to tell you all of them for you to have an experience of the song but I also don't need to tell you you can't have an experience of the song because I wrote it about this. If that makes sense. Absolutely. So, but you you definitely have some songs where I don't think they are so open to interpret. So, like, Fiscal Cliff or Private First Class sure. or Going Back, like, way far, like, No Time Flat. That, like Some of the more social justice-oriented songs. Yeah. Yeah, those you tend to... Well, sorry, finish your question before I start answering it. That was kind of my question. Just like, yeah, well, (laughs) I feel like those songs are better suited, plainer. And I still think the goal is to like write them in a way that still reads compellingly, sounds compellingly. Like it's not like, um, this is what I think without sort of a consciousness about approach and and style. Mm -hmm. Because you're still writing songs. You're not writing um, signs to hold up at a protest. In fact, I think most of my songs that are social justice oriented are a little too confusing emotionally to act, to work in a protest context. They're not simple enough. For example, I brought another bag of bones once to Amnesty International for a compilation they were putting together if that was a fundraiser for something, and they said it was too political. For Amnesty? Yeah. I'm not, they do incredible, brilliant work all over the world, but I think people need something cleaner 
and I tend to trade in gray. I think that I think even I don't know where I see myself in terms of on the spectrum of activism because I think I see the world in super gray tones. I don't see very much in black and white. I see less and less of it as I get older too. And I feel like even a song like Fiscal Cliff, like it's not so much prescriptive. It doesn't say here is what I think we should do in um, bullet form to wrest power back from corporations and to end trends of income inequality and to, um, you know, it's not like a um, manifesto so much as it's an articulation of anger, confusion, disbelief. Sure. Um, but those songs are still interpretive in the sense that they're like, if they were journalism, they'd be features. They wouldn't be like the city beat, just the facts, ma'am, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that um, it's funny because the times I have gone and played my music, like I played at Occupy when it was happening. I played in Boston. I played at an Occupy sort of like teach-in thing in Brooklyn. I've played at different sort of rallies for different things, animal rights stuff back in the day, and different different sort of politicized, social justice-oriented issues. I don't connect all the way when I get up and play those things, because I think it's a bit too ruminative and not prescriptive and reductive enough. Like, I think it needs to be a bit more like bad people rise, and I don't know that that's... My thing is more like... I'm turning stuff over in those songs, but I guess now the current climate is anytime any songwriter even writes about that stuff in a way approaching clarity or in a way that approaches like something critical. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sensitivity about that. Mm -hmm. People notice it. I think I've, you know, if I've put out a hundred something songs over eight records and bad books and Miracle of 86, I think 10 of them, 12 of them explicitly deal with social justice issues. That's 10% or less but I'm certainly someone who like has a sort of political songwriter attachment yeah which I think is really says more about the culture than it does about me because um, I don't know if I would primarily I wouldn't describe myself as an apolitical person or songwriter but I wouldn't when I think of that I think of people who are like a guy like Phil Oaks who was a folk songwriter in the 60s his was an inverse, propor inverse proportion. He probably had 80% of his songs were like very specifically about things that were happening around civil rights and Vietnam. And, and maybe there'd be once or twice per record a really beautiful love song or a song about something else that wasn't necessarily politicized. I feel like my thing is like the reverse. I write a lot about looking in. And sometimes in looking in, there's this relationship to the world around you that connects to these issues of social justice that forces you to look out, and then those songs happen. And they're almost more like exceptional to me than the rule as a songwriter. I don't feel like you have to do that. But I think that because very few people do or whatever, whenever you do it, people are like, and even, I don't have a major profile, but the profile I have is maybe large enough that people are like, oh, that's a songwriter writing about politics. That's different. It's just kind of sad, but 
I don't know. It seems I was, I was uh, listening to NPR on the way down, and, and a guy was talking about um, his book, and I don't know what the book was called because I was driving, but um, he was talking about talking about race in his books, and uh, he's an African American guy, and he was writing about kind of like what um, sort of like an imaginative take on what would it have been like if there was um, sort of like a, an African-American mafia in the South and mm-hmm. they were trading in white slaves. Mm-hmm. And what he said was, I like using these sorts of topics, these sorts of like sizzle, he used the word like sizzling hot topics. Sure. And it's like, you can touch it and then sometimes it's going to work and then sometimes it's going to burn right. you. Right. And I'm wondering what... <laughs> Total left turn. What's your... Uh, what the, so you, you said that in when you go and play before like Occupy or before kind of animal rights groups that sometimes you feel a little bit too like ruminative to like think PC. I'm and not declarative enough in some respects. Like Fiscal Cliff sounds declarative. Mm-hmm. But it's not, like I said, prescriptive. It's not like here's what I think we should do differently. It's more like an assessment and an emotional reaction as much as it is, or even more so than an intellectual one. So that's what I mean. I think rallies, I go to protests. I went to a protest for the Eric Garner um, lack of indictment. And I you know, I lived on Staten Island for a long time. I felt like personally moved to do that. Mm-hmm. And I marched and I clapped and I held a sign and I chanted and I felt very connected to a greater humanity in that. But that's not the kind of song I know how to write that doesn't feel um, three-dimensional to me, and it doesn't feel, as a writer, and it doesn't feel... I wrote something about that situation that was on... Um, I wrote something about that situation, or, or the, the whole thing with that, and with um, Michael Brown and on Facebook. I just tend to feel like you can see a bunch of different sides of everything. And so that's all I mean, is I mean, when I get up at something like that, those things tend to be, and rightfully so, an expression of a side of a thing. And I don't know if my songs are necessarily like, that's why I don't necessarily know if I see them as a soundtrack for that sort of protest movement. I think they're more kind of like an examination of a bunch of different sides of, of an issue. And Fiscal Cliff, I guess, is maybe the closest one. But even that's like what's, to me, it's like, and I know this could be a criticism of them, like what's the issue? The issue to me about that song is like, it's exhausting being lied to by the people you put faith in. Of course. And why do we continue to put faith in them? And why do people, why do we, because I'm a person, why do we continue to look for revolution in reformists? They like definitively can't be what you're looking for. Barack Obama was not going to be a revolutionary figure. He was fucking elected American president. Definitively, there's no way he could have been what the far left, he was a blank wall and people projected what they wanted on him. He's a lot of things. I'm sure if we were sitting here talking to him, he would be like unbelievably bright, charismatic, articulate. I've been on his personal politics. He's probably a lot closer to 
your more left-leaning friends than he is to like your more right-leaning, I don't know, aunts or uncles or whatever. But like, that's not what that position can ever be. So that's us. It's not. You know what I'm saying? I definitely did. Yeah. No, I know and exactly what you're saying. And that's the kind of thing I think don't you don't like get up and, or maybe you do say that at a protest or a rally, but it's a it's like you're talking about something that's like a couple of layers under the thing that's being talked about. For better and for worse, that is sort of how my head works about that stuff. I have a weird suspicion of things that get too like rah rah rah. Well, understandably so. Maybe, but whether it is or it isn't, it's how my apparatus is with it. So then, what's your what's your goal with songs like that? So like you have this platform and people listen to you because you're a good songwriter. <laughs> Um, writing things that are like a, an emotional weather report on a specific issue. What do you What do you want from your fans? What do you want it to do for you? Um, I hope that it affords me the opportunity to, to sometimes get some clarity around more confusing parts of my brain, more confusing stuff that passes through my brain from being a person living in the world um, and if anybody who listens to it can relate to that the act of trying to figure things out in real time in a world that is dissonant and confusing that's about it if it can actually instill if it can help me move towards more empathy and understanding great and if it can help other people do that amazing like beyond your wildest dreams if that actually works for other people through your shit because that's what I get out of other people's music that's about it I guess the thing you most want from your audience is to just be allowed to be left to do whatever you want to do and I feel lucky in that sense I don't feel like I have to write any specific kind of song I get to kind of write the songs that come to me because I don't feel like people have preferences and that's I have preferences you know everybody does you're a person but but yeah that's it really and that's what I mean that that is a it's not like well what I want from my music is I want people to rise up and throw off the chains of their oppression and attack their oppressors like you know I'm not like it's not like I'm invective in that way but if it can be part I think those things in a more subtle way a more human capital H human existence in the world is very often informed and arrived at through art because art can start conversation and art can emotionalize and articulate and beautify things we have a hard time articulating other ways. So if I can be part of that for myself, primarily and secondarily, hopefully for some other people, that's like, that's amazing. That's all, that's all, that's massive, but that's, I can't think about it too far from that because I have to detach from results to be a sane person. Like if I announce a tour, which is not art, this is like a, a more practical application, right? I announce a tour three or four months before the tour starts. I can promote the tour, I can put it on social media, I can maybe pay someone to help get press about the tour. 
we can do interesting things to keep it visible. But I can't make any single person buy a ticket to that tour. I can go out and do the tour. Nobody could come. Does that make me a bad songwriter if nobody came? Does that make me? No, it's those results. I'm not in the results business. I'm in a business that prizes results, but I'm not in the results business. And so I have to attach that to the art part too. I'm going to write songs. I've written songs I love that aren't like quote unquote popular. I mean, none of my music's popular, popular, but you know what I mean? Like even within the relative world of my songs, there's stuff I love that's not like Cotton Crush or Brother's Blood or Just Stay. And I love those songs too, but there's about five or six that are like other people's favorites and there's a bit of consensus around that. And there's like a lot of them that I'm like, I like that one just as much, but it didn't get there that way. And that's just gotta be okay. More than okay, it's beautiful because I get to have whatever relationship I want to have to it that it's independent of the value other people place on it. Numbers are just one way of valuing it. The tour can be a success if nobody comes, if you like had a good time doing it. Of course, it's great if people are there. You know what I mean? That's That helps. Yeah, but, you know, it's tricky. They're like really thin lines between all this stuff. It's like trying to be philosophical in a uh, very practical world and try to have like a some kind of value system that keeps you grounded and sane in a context that is often not grounded or sane, which is business. It is the music business. It's not the music um, commune. That's fair. We do we do sort of reward musicians that like you're not necessarily rewarded because you put out a beautiful song. You're rewarded when you put out a like money and like um, sort of like popularity wise you're rewarded when you put out a popular song right or if you put out a beautiful song and there's an act of consensus around it critically or an act of like you can have a success that isn't commercial if there's a consensus by sort of tastemakers or gatekeepers that you're like cool or you're but does that actually mean anything is more like we all have taste right there's certain things I really like and certain things I don't mm-hmm. when I was a younger guy I wore that as a badge and I used it as a shield and as a weapon and then you realize like who cares who cares if somebody likes pavement or Britney Spears who cares if someone likes you know was it FKA twigs or whatever or like um, Taylor Swift not me if they enjoy it and it's what gets them through the day I don't, I can have my preferences in all of those, but I don't have to like make an assessment about a person's entire cultural identity and literacy based on like the records that are digitized on their phone. And when I was a little younger, I thought I did. Cause I don't know, maybe independent music was a little bit more us versus them then. And now everything's kind of like the gates are more open, you know, like, Pitchfork will write about a band that sells a thousand copies and then the next news item will be about Taylor Swift or Kanye West and so the, the, the monocultures become a lot more diverse and small but anyway that could be a digression but yeah I there's a lot of ways you can arrive at value one of them is financial numerical uh, 
cultural saturation. And that is not an invalid metric if you choose to be in business. Business is about accumulation and about um, selling something. So to say like that doesn't exist or that's not like a valid metric is also, it's like me getting in a tank with sharks and expecting them to be like goldfish or puppies or something. I'm the one who chose to get in the shark. Sharks didn't represent themselves as fish. They represented themselves as... They've always been sharks. You know what I mean? Yeah. So to get in there and expect that they're supposed to be dandelions or something is like, that's my choice and my problem. Um, so that is a metric. How many copies you sell? How many people write nice things about your record? How many people come see your band play? But there are other metrics too. And trying to find a balance between them is like the, the thing that keeps me sane anyway doing what I do because if you didn't want to engage with the business you could just play songs in your garage I always wish someone said that to Kurt Cobain or that he could hear it I always wish like Neil Young who tried to get in touch with them or somebody Michael Stipe was like dude just stop you don't have to like be on but he was a guy who wanted to be Ian MacKay and Michael Jackson at the same time. He wanted to like be the biggest star in the world entirely on his own terms. And that's just not how things work. And I think his ego was as such that he thought, we, our egos all express themselves different ways. And I think his was, he just thought he was gonna do that. He was gonna like change the culture to such an extent that it would like be recast in his values or something. And when that was like, Oh, that's not that's not what's happening. Um, I think that was part of a series of crushing disappointments, you know. And so, trying to keep in mind that, like, like I said, you have agency about how you want to conduct yourself and at what level. It's like a sanity um, protective tool, but that makes sense. It's funny that you mentioned Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift comes up in every one of these I do. She's massive. She's the biggest thing to a monocultural pop star now. Beyonce, maybe. Kanye, slightly less. Because I still think there are like, you watch Kanye play those things that are like um, the red thing that happened recently in Times Square and like Coldplay and U2 and all these people played. And when Kanye West plays, there's still people in the crowd that like either don't know him, know of him, but don't know his music or know a few singles but don't know most of it and certainly that see him perform and are like, what is this? But I think um, Taylor Swift and Beyonce are like, that's the closest thing to monoculture and music that exists currently. They're like, everyone knows who they are. Yeah. Moms, kids, grandparents, hipsters, non-hipsters, punks, pop kids, whatever. I think it's super interesting how everyone sort of like projects their own feelings of pop culture and of like mega stardom onto her. Like, she's just a performer. She wrote a bunch of songs and they all got huge. Well, and she's also like I watched something at the MTV Video Music Awards, and it feels like watching a um, like a uh, maybe like a um, medical convention, and I'm like a country doctor who lives like out in the woods and I'm kind of like watching and I'm like oh I kind of do the same thing those people do but not really and with her she's to me like yeah she's all the things you said but she's also like a product of 
a very deliberately arrived at marketing campaign. Like she's been um, groomed and packaged to be a certain thing since before she had like agency of thought, since she was a kid, literally a kid. Mm-hmm. So to like project anything onto her besides acceptance is kind of also about the projector again, which is kind of how it always is. But it's like, she's an entertainer. She's a performer. She's also like a um, vessel for advertisement. And she writes, or someone writes with her, fun songs. And to compare, to like, to like judge her career the same way. And I think she's very savvy. I'm not saying she's like a passive part of all that. I think she's been part of all of that. Yeah. But I think to project onto her the value system you might project onto like, I don't know, some punk band or it's just a different thing. It's not, you know, the choices she's making about how she conducts her career are at such a level that it's like not even comparable to the choices I make in conducting my career. There's a lot more, in a way, there's a lot more pressure on her because more people are watching. And the information's different. She didn't grow up probably going to like basement shows and being surrounded by like outsider politics. And but I think that when there's these things that are floating past us, and there there's very few of them anymore that are as big as her. I don't think there's any, like very few. Yeah, very few. Three, two. So like she's bigger than Katy Perry. She's bigger than Lady Gaga. She's it's probably her and Beyonce. They're not, I don't do the same thing as those people. We both sing songs, but we're like, they're existing so far as to not, we can't see them from here. We can see them, but they're like, they, that's why they're stars. We can see, <laughs> you know what I mean? Nice, yeah. yeah. But I, think, uh, I think what she said there is so interesting, that like, that sort of inverse relationship between like, how much people are going to hear your voice on any given song, and then like, what, uh, sort of input the input level you're allowed to have so like you can say whatever you want in a song me more or less yeah I think s- more or less sure like it seems like if you had that level of superstardom and you were gonna put out a song and people in Japan were gonna hear it right away that you should be able to hear whatever you want but like other people's careers rely on Taylor Swift saying a certain thing which is why and I'm a, of the age that this is always going to be what I go back to and it's it was my gateway not just into pop music in a real way but in, well I was into pop music before this but deeply into it and into punk music it's funny to think about this but at the time Nirvana was Taylor Swift they were their information was totally different. The kind of music they played was totally different. But they sold 10 million records. They were a number one band, number one album-selling band. He was in every magazine. He, my grandmother knew who Kurt Cobain was. He was on Saturday Night Live. He, you know, they were a cultural phenomenon, which is what Taylor Swift is, right? Mm-hmm. When they. And that's where the dissonance came in with that whole movement. It's happened in the 60s too, but where like counterculture became culture and those tectonic plates were like rubbing against each other and causing all this. And I think that that's, he started to see that there were certain things he would, uh, uh, values he would espouse, feminism, 
uh, anti-racism, anti-homophobia, that he was going to get a significant amount of shit for from a certain cross-section of his audience because he was no longer a punk in a basement. He was Taylor Swift. Mm -hmm. So, I think how the culture, um, what's the word, co-ops that, or what it learns from that. The big culture. It learns how to swallow and disseminate that better and make the teeth less sharp. So now, first of all, an artist couldn't get to that size saying those things. Mm -hmm. And if they did, they'd find these ways to kind of like sand off the edges of it, you know? Kanye is kind of exceptional sometimes to that. I think he's a super troubled dude in terms of like his overall politics are very complicated and contradictory, but he does say some pretty especially in, in terms of um, racial identity, he says some things that are very challenging Yeah, and I think excellent and daring given his visibility, but even he's not... Part of his frustration, I feel like, as an artist and as a guy who's also an egomaniac for better and for worse, then sometimes that's what gets those people where they are, mm -hmm. but is that he can't, because the culture's changed and fragmented, he can't be Kurt Cobain. Like, no one, very few people are, he can't be Taylor Swift. He can't be, because there's only very few people that can get there now, and even Taylor Swift is not like, um, Britney Spears. I who was truly like everywhere or a guy like even Eminem for a minute who put out a record and like two million people bought it in a week or something like that. Those things are just probably never going to happen again, you know? So I think, I think the culture now doesn't allow for that. So whether they can say it or not, like I would love it if Taylor Swift came out and sang some really overtly politicized social justice oriented but I don't think I mean pop stars in general haven't really that's not really who you look to for that and certainly not now it's not really allowed I mean and I noticed even with little stuff and I'm talking about now we're talking a million leagues lower but when I would reach when I retweet certain things without editorial comment about certain issues of social justice or alignment with disenfranchised people or whatever you want to call it, I lose followers on Twitter. Or I, I mean, people will respond back and say, like, contestatory things on their way out the door and I can't listen to you anymore. And that's been like that since the first time I played, like, No Time Flat in front of an audience, you know? And that's cool. I totally think that's great. I accept that. You are not... There are a lot of musicians who don't speak about or write about anything like that, and you can go listen to them, mm -hmm. and I will, we can agree to disagree. Um, but when I see that at the level I'm at, it just gives credence to what you said, which is that if you exponentialized that, they're not gonna do that up there, because they're gonna drive people running from the theater. And the whole point of living up there is to get as many people in the theater as possible. If that makes sense. It does. It definitely does. Um, I don't know. It's really, it's a really strange, like, looking to musicians for activism seems normal, and it seems like something everyone does. And the, the more I've been doing it, the more I've been like, these are people. Yeah. <laughs> These are just human beings. <laughs> These are human beings that 
play music, and some of them are going to be higher on the activist scale, and some of them are going to be lower. Well, and, and also, there's all different definitions of that word, too. And I think about, like, um, as a human being, you're deeply inconsistent. Or I am. I can't speak for anybody else's existence, but I'm a, an inconsistent person. There's days, because people are imperfect, and there's days where I feel more um, connected to activist ideas, or just deep thinking than others. There's other days I want to like and do, want to and do, disconnect from it, you know? And, and so for me, I'm always like trying to, not as a deflection, but I think there are tears to activism and I think there are people who are way, way, I want to clarify this, way, more activist than I consider myself to be, for for sure. But but that's also you know, some days you're you're closer to it than others, and that's to me what being a person is. There's inconsistencies, and that's what makes us interesting. It's also what makes us frustrating, and you know. But you're right. The people who write the songs, people like all people, every one of us, them is a person. It's instructive for me to remember that sometimes because you can project all this other shit onto everybody and you're like, oh no, wait. She's just a woman. He's just a guy, etc." I have a, so I work for this LGBT rights organization and, and people often ask like, so why do you do it? And it's like, like, so what you're saying and what like I very much believe is like, I believe in it so much and I believe that like, we have so much work to do. Mm -hmm. Some days it feels like you're just doing a job. And then some days you get those days when it's like so overwhelming and so emotional and so like oh my God. response. And that's true of this side of the table also. I've never wanted to do anything as much as I want to. My whole life that I can remember, I've wanted to play music since I was eight, seven. I remember like pictures earlier than that of me like holding a toy guitar and like, I literally know. I, st 1987 in my cousin Sean's bedroom in Charlottesville, Virginia, Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses came on the radio and I heard the guitar riff. I remember, and I remember going like, I was like, oh my God, the world was all of a sudden like, in color, as stupid as that sounds, and then I can tell you points along the chain, Nirvana, hardcore shows, Elliot Smith, where that experience kept doubling down and growing out. Mm -hmm. There are totally days where I'm like, I don't want to play this show. I don't want to insert whatever thing I get to do, that I have to do, get to do as yeah. a musician, working musician, but that's being a person. No one's passionate about the same thing all the time, every day. If you ate chocolate, chocolate's great, pizza's great. I love them both. If I ate them every day, there'd be days where I'm like, I don't want pizza. I don't want chocolate. There's days you don't want to be, no matter, and, and not that I'm reducing what you're working for or, or, the, or getting to be a musician to pizza and chocolate, but I think it's, our brains can sometimes. There's days you do and don't want to do things. Mm -hmm. And maybe the days where you get up and do the thing even though you don't want to, those are the days that build a muscularity around it. 
and a rea- and like an, a reflex around it. And those are the days that are almost more important because you showed up regardless. But I think like five minutes ago, you started to ask me a question, and I took us off the path. You sort of said you wanted to talk about homophobia. Oh yeah, this has been a super great interview. I'm super happy with the way this is going. Good. <gasps> Thank you. Thank you. Um, we do. Uh, so we we were started by the band Fun, and that that's about them seeing the way that gay kids get treated in school, seeing originally the way that marriage equality was being treated in the United States, like on a national scale, and like what kind of bullshit reactions people were having to it, and like why, why, why was that? And so it was started by the, these kind of core group of people, the guys from Fun, and then Rachel Antonoff, um, who are all great. I, I I've known all of those people, on and off for Jack. And Rachel, I met in 2007. We did a tour together when Jack was in Steel Train. Um, and, uh, oh my God, why am I spacing right now on uh, hyper-caffeinated, on um, Singer? Nate. Nate, oh my God, 2004. Um, I was on tour with a band called The Rocket Summer and Nate came out to our show in Arizona. I was opening and... We, uh, we went out to eat afterwards, and in 2009, I played guitar for a little while in a friend's band called New Numbers, and we opened for fun at Mercury Lounge. So I've known those dudes on and off for Nate for 10 years, Jack for seven, and Will Noon, who's drumming with them. I know Will, yeah. Um, and Nate, who's playing bass for them. Natty. From Koufax, <laughs> from um, Straylight Run, from Breaking Pangea. I mean, those are all people I've literally known for 10 years. So, and to see them get where they've gotten has been really kind of thrilling because I know how hard they've all worked. I've seen them in the trenches and they've actually like busted their asses to get there. So anyway, I'm familiar with them. Okay, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. That's so cool to meet people that like know them from previous from, life. From way back when. Yeah. yeah. Like we, we talked to a lot of people about like, what would you say to a fan that's struggling with their identity? I think it's really hard to be, when I was a teenager, which is, a, I, want, I don't know why my brain goes there. You're like exploding inside. There's all of this, and I knew, I mean, I was fairly sure, fairly early, that I was identified sexually as into women, and that I was, there was moments of like, doing some fact finding, mm-hmm. but I was pretty sure that was, that seemed to be where things were headed. And, but you're in that adolescent period of time, you're like, oh, it's hormonal. It's everything is just on fire and moving to then either be told or be aware of through context clues that the things that are firing within you are things that are either you're made to feel less than different, unwelcome, or worse about in your home, in your community, in your school, in your faith, whatever, in the society at large. I think about the way I felt, the way every teenager I've ever known has felt about something, and then pouring that on top of that volatility is, I mean, brutal. Brutal. What I would say 
is that one, I wouldn't presume to know what exactly that's like because of what I identify as. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to be presumptuous, but I also know that a lot of the things, and no having friends that identify it as gay, lesbian, trans, other, all over the spectrum, um, and having had friends throughout into adulthood that struggled with that when they felt comfortable, if they ever felt comfortable making that known or being public with it, even public in their own immediate sphere. Whatever the hell you are, there's a community out there for you somewhere. It might not be the community that you find yourself in right then and there, but that doesn't mean it's not out there. It's really hard to find the strength to go looking for that sometimes because there's this intense kind of like self and, and, and sad and really brutally sad like self rejection that can come at some part of that phase too, internalizing that it's wrong or something. But that's the, I mean, you're not alone even when you think you are most alone particularly when it comes to issues of identity, there's, I remember someone saying to me very early on, whatever you're thinking or feeling, there is someone else in the world right now thinking and feeling the same thing. I remember thinking when I was a kid, someone said that to me. And I was like fascinated by this idea. I think about it all, still all the time. Like I'll try to think of the craziest thing I can think of or if I'm feeling the most isolated and Separated from humanity, I, I can feel that thought will pop into my head. So thank God someone said that to me, or thank whatever you want to thank someone said that to me. And I would say that, that even at the moment you're most separated, you're not. I wish there was a real time component to that sometimes. Like someone can just like, the moment you feel that way, they can just pop up and materialize in front of your face and be like, I got you but you will find that. And um, that of course this goes, to me it goes without saying, but it's probably worth saying anyway. Cause some people, I, it's hard, you know what, I grew up here. It's hard for me to think about what this might be like for someone growing up in either A, a culture that where, where there's like, in America, there are you know, recesses of uh, regressive, emotional, intellectual, spiritual, philosophical, culture and then outside there's actually places where you can be like legally physically hurt killed jailed whatever so saying to those people like hold on because so that's I get that I don't know what that experience is going to be like and I never will or I don't know if I ever will but it's not likely but um, there's nothing wrong with how can there be something wrong with how the way we see ourselves that makes sense to ourselves and makes us comfortable on our skin and then as an extension, the way we process beauty and truth and love and who we see those things in. Mm -hmm. The world's a fucking hard place to live. For me, if you're gonna start like, legislating what's right and wrong about one of the very few things that can bring like unmitigated beauty into that very difficult space. Well, that's about the, uh, as always, that's about the opp oppressor and not the oppressed.
So I don't know. I wish there was a simpler, cleaner thing to say. But that's why I think that whole, like, you know, it gets better and all that stuff, that's why people attach to that kind of thing because you can be critical of anything, but what was going on there was people trying to, like, reach out into dark spaces and tell people, like, you're not alone. Absolutely. And that's really all anyone can ever do. Gradations of that. So I guess all of this is to say there's nothing wrong with you and you're not alone. That's beautiful, and I think... If that makes any sense at all, that's what I got. No, absolutely. It's really, it's nice... It's nice to hear someone be so thoughtful about it and not kind of, here's the black and white. It's like. I wish I could be a little more black and white sometimes, but it is not the wiring <laughs> that I have. So I've, I, and I like the gray because I think I can hopefully access more empathy for people from that space. Black and white thinking tends to divorce people from an, a capacity for empathy because it's either like right or wrong. Mm -hmm. I have Marxist friends and I've gone to some of their meetings and I think a lot of what they say is right on and I'd like to see a lot more equity in the world, right? Mm -hmm. But also, there's a rigidity to it that it, you know, you tend to think of like, and for the people listening, I'm drawing a line from left to right. You know, one index finger is one pole and that's like a socialist and one index finger is like a right-wing conservative wing nut. But actually, it's more of like a circle and in the rigidity of it, those two things are way closer to each other because they're both like fundamentalist. This is right. Mm -hmm. And nothing else can kind of like, this is unshakable. <laughs> things need to be shakable. I think that's how things move forward. Something set in stone and rigid and immutable. Well, then why bother examining it? Can't move it. Yeah, it just is then. It just is. And socially speaking, very few things are that. Society needs to be able to, like, move. So, anyway. I'm not, that sounds like I'm, like, running for president. That's my, uh, that's my, that's my spiel. That, so, after, after music, you've got. The children's books. Children's books, shirts, and running president. 2024. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't know, will I be old enough? That is the last thing I'd ever want to do, by the way. 2030, I think, would be my age of eligibility. Oh, no, you have to be 35. Mm -hmm. I can do that right now. I'm one day into my eligibility. Oh, my so gosh, it was your birthday yesterday. It, yeah, it was. Happy birthday. Thank you, sir. So, yeah, uh, but that's not happening and <laughs> ever. <laughs> and if it did happen, I would get point oh 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 oh. I'd probably get disqualified a weekend because they'd find out some of the shit that I've done in my life and they'd it would be over very fast. The smear campaign would not take long to run me out of the primaries or whatever. But Well, uh, this has been wonderful. Um, I think we're going to wrap up here. So thank you very much, Kevin. My pleasure. Thanks for thank having me. Yeah. Um, so we'll see you all next week uh, with Stephen Kellogg. See ya. Bye.